Dan, welcome to Uncharted and Eclectic. So good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to uh, chat with you guys. Absolutely. And you're for our first uh, guest where there's a co-host between both myself and Robbie Allen. Uh, and we usually love to kick it off, Dan, with a nice personal bio as well as a business bio. So do you mind giving us some context uh, on who you are, your upbringing, uh, as well as what you've done in the business world? Yeah, so I'm, a, I guess, a Bay Area native. Um, I'm scared to leave this 30-mile radius that I call uh, San Francisco in the Bay Area, which is, uh, for better or for worse, but it's a pretty good place to, uh, to live. Uh, but grew up down in Saratoga, fell in love with technology super early on. I was doing pretty much kind of two things um, growing up. I was either playing sports um, or on the computer. So my parents have fortunately stopped hassling me about uh, playing on the computer these days because it's turned out to be a relatively good career. But I went to Santa Clara undergrad for, for uh, Santa Clara for undergrad, went to Berkeley for business school, and then um, have been fortunate to spend a bunch of time at uh, some good companies like Google. I was there for a decade, helped build out their inside sales team under Sheryl Sandberg, uh, helped build out sales at a company called AdRoll, and then uh, was fortunate to uh, join an incubator here in San Francisco called Atomic. And I uh, was the CEO of SVT Recognition and NLP startup called Talk IQ, which was acquired by Dialpad two years ago. And I've been at Dialpad ever since and am our uh, CRO, Chief Strategy Officer, and then also on the Dialpad board. Dan, I, um, and that's awesome. And thank you for sharing. I, I, I asked this question um, because I know about some of your most recent athletic endeavors and would love to get into that as well, like some of the training that you're doing. But you mentioned, you know, growing up and playing sports. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm always curious, like, how do you think, you know, I know you played water polo at, at Santa Clara. How do you think, you know, growing up a competitive, competitive athlete, like, impacted what you decided to do professionally? And, like, how has that experience served you over the years? Yeah, so, um, yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Um, so I did play, played water polo in college. And then um, I also have, I guess I have my... I, have a thing for for pain. Um, I do a lot of, uh, I'm actually training for a hundred mile trail run here in August, and then uh, have done some ultra marathons before, and some Ironmans. And I think all of that stuff comes back to it. It teaches you discipline, um, teaches you how to be collaborative. Um, there's a thing about working in a team environment of understanding that you're, you're part of a bigger thing and you've got to figure out how to actually work together that no single person is, is going to make something successful. Um, and I also think there's a part around like you've got to be able to manage through the ups and downs that happen. And I think um, that's probably why I've gotten more into kind of longer endurance racing um, as I've gotten older. Um, is really just it teaches, I think it, there's a parallel to life, which is, look, there's going to be ups and downs, and you have to be able to take that next step forward, knowing that, look, you may feel bad at one point, but in another point, you're going to feel really good. Um, and so I think all of those things, kind of th those experiences translate into the working world, which is like, hey, you can join a startup, and things can be going really good. And then, you know, look at the environment that we're going through right now. Um, without a moment's notice, something can happen and, and it can go drastically the other way. And you've got to be able to, to maintain a positive outlook on that. You've got to be willing to take a step forward. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that translate between the two. That's awesome. And just one more question on that. So, you know, I think a lot of listeners will hear this and say, you know, how is this guy who, uh, you know, um, on the board and, and CRO slash chief sales officer for um, uh, Dialpad, um, uh, 
finding the time to train for a hundred mile marathon trail run. Um, I'd love to like get a sense from you. Like, I mean, that's a huge time commitment. Like, how do you think about, you know, balancing like your responsibilities at work and, and still having success there with, with like pouring time and effort and energy into this other passion that you have? Like, how do, how do you find, how do you strike that balance? Yeah, I think you, you have to get creative. Um, you know, I do do double days in the morning. My girlfriend's pretty, pretty flexible with me in terms of understanding that look like this is a thing that matters to me. That's, um, I really like to move in, during the day and, and moving actually sets me up. Uh, I just am in a better mood. Um, it's, a, it's a stress reliever for me. Um, removes anxiety, all of those things that I think, um, you know, every single person kind of kind of deals with. And so that forces me that, look, I've got to be able to suck it up and get up a little bit earlier in the morning and go and work out. And, and there's definitely times at nine o'clock at night where, you know, I'll go out for a run as well, because that's the only time that I can, that I can find to do it. Um, and so I think there's just trade, there, there's just trade offs. And I think, again, as you get kind of older, old, older in life, or, or you have different things that, that, that show up in terms of, you know, you might have a family to manage, you might have a commute. Um, there are sacrifices that you got to make to find the time if it's important. Um, fortunately for me, too, I, I'm also, I, I don't watch a lot of TV, um, for better or for worse. Um, but you know, those times where I, I do think that if somebody's kind of sitting down and watching TV for hours, like I'd rather be moving. And so those are things that I naturally kind of find ways to utilize. I, I think some of it goes back to routine, Dan. I, I, I'm the same way where like, I want to just get it over with in the uh, earlier yeah. part of the day, right? And it, it sets you up for success, right? Like, like right off the bat. Uh, so I, I couldn't agree more with you. So uh, anything you can do, I think it's part of it for the listeners, it's awareness, right? Like finding out what ticks you. And the second part is finding out how do you, how can you get motivated, right? For, and for yeah. me, um, there's a really good book um, by James Clear, uh, Clear Habits. And one of the things he talks about is if you're not that type of person, you've you got to have things that become like a reminder for you. So I usually put my, my, like my running gear right next to my bed and it becomes a nice way for me to kind of get, get the day going to some, some actionable insights. What have yeah. you seen work for you from like when we're talking about this? Like what are some actionable insights or things like that are actual tactically, whether it's work or personal that, that help you kind of like overcome any obstacle? Yeah, I think uh, in terms of that, it's funny that you mentioned um, Atomic Habits. I actually just finished that the other week. And, uh, and so I journal every day and just talking about kind of like little hacks that you can do. There's a journal that sits on my desk here at work. And so every time I sit down at the desk, it's the first thing that I see and do in the morning too. Um, so it's a, it's a great book and really good. Um, sorry, I missed the question just that I was uh, adding on to that. You, uh, no, yeah, no worries. It's um, I, I, what are some tactical tips? So journaling is one of them. Get going is one of them. Maybe if you are a, a sports yeah. athlete, like have, what are some tips that have worked for you? Yeah, I think um, some of it's just the mental parts of thinking about, look, there, there are plenty of time right now in this, in, in this, uh, this training for this hundred mile run. Um, so I wanted to challenge myself and do a hundred mile a week um, the other week. So I was doing basically 15 miles a day for, for seven days straight and it sucked. Um, there were definitely days that I wanted to skip. And I think you have to mentally, one is you just got to mentally suck it up at times. Two is I've never ever gone out for a run and then regretted it or said, I wish I didn't do that. And so I think it's a, it's a case of you've got to find ways to be willing to take that first step. Even if that first step is just, hey, I'm going to start walking. 
um, as opposed to running. Um, and there are days that I do that where I'm like, look, I don't want to get outside. I don't want to go on these runs. I'll just start walking. And then usually that walk turns into a shuffle. That shuffle turns into to a little bit faster pace. And that faster pace turns into like me suddenly running. And then you kind of get through it. Um, I think there's other things where you can kind of overload yourself too, where look, like, you know, not to, to continue to kind of harp on this thing on, on the training, but it, it, it's just top of mind for me right now. Also found ways to split it up. Like some days I would actually go and do, um, as opposed to trying to do 15 at once, like I would split it up and run three times during the day for five miles each. And I can pretty much bang that out in roughly 32, like 30 minutes. Um, and so those were easier ways where I think at times you can apply that to, to, you know, to, to work or whatever it might be to any project that you're taking on is opposed to like, don't let it overwhelm you. Um, and figure out ways to take small steps and figure out ways to break it down. And again, nothing, none of this is rocket science, but I think it applies to a lot of things and actually makes things feel a lot more accomplishable, a, a lot easier to go and do. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very well said. I've been, I mean, I'm imagining a lot of those tactics are things that you, you know, that show up like day to day in your life in ways that you probably don't even realize. Like there's the intention setting of, okay, I'm going to go accomplish this goal. I'm going to train yeah. for this, this race. And then th those, I imagine those same principles, those same, you know, ways that you, you kind of train your mind to think show up at, at work. And, and so I, I'd love Dan. I think one, one thing I've, I've always like really admired and been interested about is how you've kind of started a career in sales you, you you know you got started at google early on you went on a nine-year journey um on the adwords side of the business and like i'd love to learn because i think it's it's pretty well understood in the kind of tech world that like google adwords that business unit like it, it is arguably one of the best businesses ever created like dominate search and sell adwords and to have been there since you know um the very early days and kind of go from the journey from individual contributor to running the whole new business sales unit. Like tell us a little bit about that journey and kind of like what some of the biggest things that you learned were. I think a lot of people look at Google and they don't necessarily think like, you know, traditional SaaS sales team right, right away. Um, but there was this, this, this team selling AdWords and, and running that business. Like we'd love to learn if there were maybe one or two, um, you know, big learnings or takeaways from that, that journey in your career. Yeah, the biggest the biggest takeaways to me they're really twofold. Like one is um, the structure and process, which I'll which I'll come back to. But the number one thing that always stands out to me um, was really learning, or and, and not even learning at the times because like like when I joined, I was twenty two. I had no idea what was going on, and and being there through this time was was pretty wild ride that I didn't realize how wild it was until you kind of look back in, in hindsight. But a lot of it came down to like the leadership aspects and the communication aspects of just seeing the ways that um, Cheryl Sandberg and David Fisher uh, and Emily White, um, Claire Johnson, like all of uh, all of these these people that that you got to work with and see lead have gone on to really exceptional great careers. Um, and I think it it showed me that look like to be a really effective leader, um, you have to demonstrate empathy. Um, you've got to find ways to connect as a human with people. And what I say by that is like, you know, sometimes people can overthink and, and they can get nervous, you know, speaking in front of board members or perhaps it's chatting with their CRO or their CEO, whatever it might be. Um, and I think you, what I really learned from that leadership was, look, like everyone's just a person. Um, 
and you don't need to overthink it and get nervous about it. Uh, and that person might know some things more than you and they might know some other things less than you. Um, and I really have taken that a lot from, from, from kind of those 10 years there was really just how to be an effective leader in terms of communication, connecting with people, um, showing vulnerability, providing hard feedback, being honest, like all of the things that you hear about. Um, but I always kind of come back to that when I think about that time. And then the second piece was really around the process of, you know, how do you actually architect these, you know, a sales organization? How do you move fast and recognize that, look, if you roll out changes, um, it's okay to say, hey, we did that, you know, we did that poorly. Um, we were a bunch of knuckleheads. We're going to go make an adjustment. And we do that today here at Dialpad. It's one of the, the, one of the things I say to the team and our, and our VP of sales, Ben Earl, is look, when we, anytime we go through change management or, or, or make adjustments to the team, we tell them, look, if we make a mistake here, you have all of the right to call us knuckleheads and we will go and make an adjustment. And, and it is a really open way to communicate with the teams and say, look, like we also want people, everyone here has a voice. We're not always going to be perfect. Um, and I really took that away from my experience at Google as well. The other thing I, uh, that you bring up is this whole concept of change management, right? And look, for most people, it's not easy to change, right? It's part of it, but it's uh, for some folks, it's it's not the easiest thing to do. Yeah. What have you found to be like a really good maybe playbook or formula for change management, whether it's changing the strategy or positioning or whatever it may be? Like w what's worked in your case to dive a little yeah. deeper? Yeah, so what, what has worked for me in the past when it comes to change management is one, effectively communicating the why the change. Um, two, comes down to sharing data as to, you know, how did you make this decision? You know, how did people come to make this decision? Um, three is kind of like what you think it's going, what you're going to accomplish by it. Like, where is it going to lead you? And I, for, I think the fourth part, and perhaps the most critical, is actually having a conversation around um, saying, hey, if this doesn't work, we're, we're going to make an, an adjustment and another change, right? Or, or revert back to the old way. And I think it's a case of people want to know reassurance. I think the hardest part about change is the unknown. Right. So the more that you can remove the unknown and then how do I give reassurance to, hey, this will be positive. And if it's not positive, we'll go back and find another way that will, that will kind of bring back that thinking. Um, and I think that when you go through change management, the fourth piece is what I think I have experienced get missed in the past. Um, and that creates the anxiety of like, look, everyone's going to go sell. This is the better change. But nobody's saying if it doesn't work out, what's going to happen. And I think you got to have that part of the conversation there as well. That's awesome. And so I'd love to maybe transition a bit from like, um, like take that framework and then ask you a little bit more, Dan, about like frameworks you've used to think about your career and like your, your kind of uh, growth and the challenges that like you've chosen to take on. And so, you know, after, after Google, um, you have a great run over at, at AdRoll, um, running that sales team um, as the VP and managing director. And then you make this decision in 2017 to move over um, to this small little company uh, called TalkIQ um, and become the CEO. Um, so tell me a little bit about like, what is kind of the framework that you use for like your own personal change management and thinking about making that change in your career path from being, you know, sales leader to going early and, you know, taking over a team um, as the CEO. Yeah, so um, you know, for a little bit of context, my dad, my dad was a, a CEO growing up, 
and so um, a lot of kind of like my the, my work experiences are, are probably heavily influenced um, uh, from my dad. And my, and my dad passed away. If I talk about him in the past, my dad passed away um, uh, six years ago. So um, just for context of that. And I think in terms of frameworks, like I got to a place like I'd been kind of um, trying to think of dates, like 13, 14 years into my career, it's like mid 30s. Um, and I remember talking with um, Wesley Chan, who's a, a partner at Felicis. Um, uh, he's a, uh, they're a venture couple. Um, and then uh, Wes had also worked with me at Google for a long time. So he was one of Google's first PMs. Um, and anytime I have a career conversation, I go and chat with, with, uh, with Wes. And, and what was playing out in my career was I knew that I wanted to do more and I knew that I wanted to not just be in sales and I didn't want to just be an ad tech. So at that time, I'd spent you know, roughly 13 years in ad tech and I had this long run at Google, um, had another long run at AdRoll for four years. Um, and then was really in just this place of, hey, you're mid thirties. Um, do you want to continue going to be a CRO somewhere or do you want to go do something else? Um, and at that time, um, I was really struggling with do I want to stay in sales? How do I make this transition to, to out of ad tech into something that's more SaaS? And then if I want to go do something outside of sales, how do I even make that transition? Um, and so for me, I was at this place where I knew I wanted to run a company and I was struggling to think about, look, there's two ways to run a company. If you've got to join something really early on, or you have to be willing to start something yourself. Um, and so I went to Wes and was, and was talking a lot about this. And he said, look, like you should actually go and talk to some of these incubators and some VCs because they typically will have entrepreneur in residence roles or executive in residence roles. And um, through Wes had connected with Atomic and Atomic is um, basically a company builder here in San Francisco. Um, I had met with um, Jack Abraham um, and Chester Ng and um, they had, had said, look, here's an opportunity where you can potentially come in as an executive in residence and kind of either come up with your own idea or potentially join um, one of the companies that we're working on. Um, and it was really the like taking a right-hand path of the road. Um, I had some other offers for CRO opportunities. Um, and then this was one where I was going to go take literally a 75% haircut on um, my compensation in the immediate term and then go from having a very structured day to a completely unstructured day of, you know, go join this, go be an, a, a, an entrepreneur in residence and then kind of the world is your oyster, but you're not gonna get paid very much and you gotta have to figure a bunch of things out. Um, when I spoke with Wes on it, he's like, look, this is a, this is a no brainer for you given that you would like to go and, and run a company one day. Um, this is also an opportunity where you will be where you will get pushed into meeting the most amount of new people and also have um, a tremendous amount of exper new experiences come your way as well. Um, and so that's how I made that decision was, look, it was going to take me completely out of my comfort zone. It was going to push me just full into the unknown, um, but it was also probably going to uh, expose me to like, do I really want to go run a company or start something myself? Um, the other path of seeing on the sales track was not going to, was probably going to just take a lot longer to get there if I ever wanted to do it. Um, so at that moment in time, you know, I've, I was, um, had a little bit of flexibility and, 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 uh, and it was just one of those, one of those risks that I took and it turned out to be like one of the best decisions of my life, um, to be honest, was when I joined Atomic and then um, joined Talk IQ as the CEO. 
uh, went through immediate fundraising of our Series A, and that was led by Salesforce and Scale Ventures, and that was a whole a, a whole experience to go through. And then, literally 18 months later, had an acquisition offer come over from from Dialpad, and then led the team through the acquisition. And it was just this wild journey that um, that has profoundly changed the trajectory of my career. Um, and it all started with, hey, I've got to take some short-term, um, got to be willing to take a big risk, got to take some short-term financial hits because I'm going to get paid, you know, it's paid, you're paid differently than, than um, somebody that's a CRO or VP of sales, whatever it might be. Um, but in the long term, it was, it's been exceptional and, and uh, I was fortunate to have some, some good guidance along the way. That's awesome. And, and what a cool story. I mean, I think when we talk to, Koi and I have uh, the opportunity to talk to a lot of really kind of entrepreneurial um, marketing and sales execs who I, I think often reach a stage in their career where they ask themselves a similar question, you know, uh, in, in wanting to start a company or continuing on the path of being sort of a subject matter expert on sales and marketing. So to hear a story about somebody who not only did that, but but led um, a small company in Talk IQ through a successful acquisition is really cool. And, and I think just one follow-up there, Dan, like I'd love... What was like maybe one thing uh, in taking the role as a CEO? Like you, you knew you were going to take a haircut on comp. You knew that your day was going to be a little bit more unstructured, like unstructured like, right going in. Like you were somewhat known. Like what was maybe one thing you learned on that journey as a CEO um, that you had no idea going in? Hmm. Uh, there were, there, I, I'm smiling. Obviously there's no videos, but I'm smiling. There's a ton of things that I learned on that. Communication becomes key. Um, I think the number one thing that I realized um, leading that business was making sure you have the right people in the right places. Um, and it never, it didn't, it, it didn't hit me as profoundly um, anywhere else in my career as it did in that, in that moment of time. Um, and I think it's true when I talk to our frontline managers here at Dialpad today, I say that even for their individual teams, when I connect with our team leads and, our, and, and the managers and the senior, you know, whoever it might be, is do you have the right people in the right places? Um, and I think at times um, we don't always think about that. Um, but when you're a CEO, it becomes glaringly obvious to you of like your, your, your main job is one, make sure that there's funding and money in the bank for the business Two, that you're setting the strategy. And then the third part is making sure you have the right people in the right places. And if not, then you have, you have to go and make decisions on that. Um, because it's, it's either, especially look, if you're a, a siege state startup, it's either gonna, it, it's, it potentially will lead to the death of the company. Yeah. And I, sorry, I've got, uh, Poya, Poya and I are pinging each other and he's got a question, but I've got one more. I just have to ask here. Like, I know that like, as a, you know, as you've learned, like over the years, just like how important recruiting is and getting, like you said, the right people in the right places. And, you know, as a sales leader, you know, the best sales leaders, we typically hear across the board emphasize recruiting and the talent that they bring in and the team building is really like a hallmark of their personal success. So, you know, you've, you've already had a lot of experience recruiting. How, how much more emphasis did you spend recruiting as a CEO? Um, and when I say recruiting, I mean both like internal team building as well as like bringing new people into the organization than you did yeah. as like a VP of sales, a CRO. Cause I think a lot of people, um, can maybe learn to empathize a bit more with how much CEOs have to do that. Like what, what was the difference there in your experience? 
Yeah, I think what's what's funny um, is like little things that I do that I that I do that I think are somewhat odd but have been useful. Um, every place that I, and I'll come back to answering that question in a second, but I'll just I'll share I'll share this because because uh, I think it's relevant. Any place that I go and work, I actually keep a little list of the people I would want to work with again or hire. Um, and so as I worked at AdRoll, kept a list. People in marketing I thought were awesome. People in sales ops, um, sellers, BDRs, managers, people in people operations, like you name it. Um, and I keep that running list. And when I became the CEO of Talk IQ, one of the first things I did was literally just go through and recruit um, people in my network that I knew um, I wanted to hire and two, I think wanted to work with, were willing to go and work with me again. The nice part is as a CEO, um, you've got kind of the blank check to go and get people, um, right? All things considered. Um, and that was one of the things, but I don't think, um, I don't think it, it, it changes whether you're the CEO or the VP of sales or the, or the manager, um, you know, the manager of a smaller team. Um, you always have to think about recruiting. And the thing that, I, that I'd say to all of the members of, of our team here is taking a true accountability for their teams. And what I mean by that is, look, you really have to be the coach of your team. And if you don't think, comes back to like, if you don't think you have the right people, the right players on the team, you got to be willing to make the trades, right? And it happens every year in, in professional sports, of, you know, contracts aren't re-signed, people are traded, people go make draft picks. Um, and I really try to encourage the, the managers and, and leads of teams to think in that same way of like, nothing is, nothing is certain and you want to make sure that you're finding the right people and the best talent and investing in the talent that you have and coaching. Um, and so I don't think the emphasis necessarily changed anymore as the CEO and other places of my career. Um, I think, again, it just comes back to like, you, it, it, it becomes much more critical to make the right hiring decisions. It, that, uh, to paraphrase, it, it, it's about optionality, right? You don't want too many options, but a few just so you can even have the opportunity to kind of make those trades. Look, Dan, um, I, the thing I just want to say is I, I, we can continue. <laughs> Robbie and I are just going back and forth. Like, should we ask another question? But at the same time, I, I want to keep those questions about what you've learned about management, moving up the ladder, how all those things are different, hopefully for a future episode so we can get you back on the show. So we're going to transition to what we call uh, the famous three questions. And one of them, Robbie's kind of asked, so I'm going to change it up, which is what is one thing you wish you knew uh, before you got to X and X could be Google, your professional career, CEO, like however you want to define that. I know you brought up the communication thing earlier, but we'd love to see if you have another answer. Yeah, I think, um, and none of this may be incredibly profound. Um, so bear with me. Uh, I think that I wish I had known, um, look it, my network worked out at Google. Um, because Google happened to turn into turn into kind of you know this this um, amazing company in company history, or in kind of the world history, um, but I didn't realize the impact of that network um, and having the relationships uh, at, that I did at the time. And anytime I've looked for a new role, I've leveraged that network today. I've never um, ever had to look for a job where somebody I wasn't connected with in the past that worked at Google. Um, and so I would just encourage people, you know, when you're coming out of, out of school or you're looking for a new job, um, whatever it might be, is really think about how do I leverage my network? How do I maintain that network once you're there? 
think about who are the people that you want to go and learn from and build a real real connection with them and a real relationship because I think it can have such compounding effects that, you know, fortunately for me, it just kind of played out. Um, it played out in a way that I didn't expect um, and it wasn't intentional at the time. Um, and I wish I had had that. Uh, I wish I had had that knowledge at the time. And um, the next question, Dan, is what, what's like one thing that, uh, that you believe to be true that most other people don't? Hmm. This is a good one. And I, um, I, I think the, this is, this is probably going to, uh, this will be somewhat controversial. Um, I have never, so I do like sales methodologies. I'll stay, I'll stay with that. Um, I'm not a huge believer that whether you're like the challenger sale or something else really matters. I don't think chale, I don't think sales has drastically changed since the beginning of time, which is like, find out how to connect with people. You've got to figure out how to position your value prop. Um, you've got to ask good questions to qualify whether um, things are right. Um, and then you've got to run just a good process of, of, as you said, like asking the right questions and making sure that you're solving a real problem. Um, so that I think we get constantly pulled into, hey, here's the new, here's the new sales methodology. Like this is the better way to sell. Um, and I'm not necessarily a believer in all of that stuff, to be honest. And that can be somewhat controversial. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't think that there needs to be some a pr good sound processes in place. Um, I just don't necessarily think the I don't buy the methodology stuff. I think it's a little bit more marketing speak. We don't have sales trainers listening to us. So at the very least, I'm going to coin the O'Connell playbook if you ever go, <laughs> if, if you ever go live with it. But um, the last question to wrap things up is um, what, what's one experience or person that's guided you? Uh, it could be a book. It could be anything. Uh, but we'd love to know if there's one thing that you want to pay it forward to and, and maybe uh, make it actionable for others. Yeah, um, Wesley Chan has had um, profound impacts just on my professional career. Um, you know, I mentioned him a little bit earlier, but um, Wes and I had met early on in, in our days at Google, and um, he's just super sharp, and he, he gives me really good, honest um, feedback and just listens and asks questions as opposed to kind of telling, you know, telling you what to do. Um, and it's always guided me in a really good way. Um, and so just really thankful for, for, for having him in my network and somebody I can leverage. And then Chester Ng, who's, who's at Atomic, um, has also been just exceptional. And we've grown really close over, over the years of um, just similar aspects. Just ask really good questions, well-connected, um, gives me good feedback, um, has just gone through a tremendous amount of different experiences in his professional career and shares that wisdom. And so um, those two individuals are just really thankful for and, and have helped me out in so many ways. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Dan. Uh, I've gotten a lot out of it, but the one thing I want to call out is just your ability to maintain those relationships. It's not easy, right? Uh, as we grow old, it just gets tougher, but I think it's crucial, right? Not only having the not only having the network, but being able to go back to it and keep growing up. So uh, if people want to get in touch with you, Dan, uh, one, are you open to that? And, and what would be the best way? Yeah. So um, best ways is uh, just on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me, shoot me a message. Um, I like meeting new people and, and just chatting. And again, um, don't overthink reaching out. Um, it's not that big of a deal. I'll get back to you or I'll ignore you. I say that jokingly. I won't. 
Well, on behalf of Robbie and I, as well as the rest of the community, thanks so much for your wisdom and your time. Yeah, I yeah, this was super fun. I appreciate you guys finding the time to connect as well. So thank you. Helps engineers and engineering managers become great leaders. And how do they do that? Well, Plato helps you find the perfect mentor thanks to its network of experienced engineering leaders who work at the world's best tech companies. For a monthly fee, you have unlimited access to mentors who can help when you have challenging situations as a manager. Visit them at PlatoHQ.com.